large scale combat operations are not inevitable and it's an it, the imperative should be to avoid it given the humanitarian consequences welcome to nsl unscripted a national security law podcast brought to you by the national security law department at the u.s army's the judge advocate general's legal center and school we bring you conversations and hot topics from nsl practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode <laughs> Welcome once again to another episode of NSL Unscripted. I am your host, Major Emily Bobbinreath. And while I'm currently a student in the 71st graduate course at the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, I will be joining the National Security Law Department this summer as an associate professor. But today, we have the privilege of hosting Ms. Lakmini Senaviratna, legal advisor and head of the legal department at the Regional International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, delegation for the U.S. and Canada based in Washington, D.C. Lakmini has been with the ICRC since 2008 and brings a wealth of experience and knowledge about the ICRC, its mission, and what we as national security law practitioners should be aware of when it comes to working with this unique organization. I met Lakmini last week for the first time over Zoom to plan this podcast, and the first thing that struck me about her is just how incredibly approachable and down-to-earth she is. I'm so excited to bring her kindness and expertise to the podcast. Lakmini, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Emily, for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here as well. So today we are going to talk about the ICRC, its mission in combat operations, as well as discuss how uniformed attorneys work and interface with the ICRC in a deployed environment. But first, what I'd like to do, Lakmini, is I'd love to start by asking a little bit about your background and career path. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to today? Sure, I'm happy to. Part of it was choice, part of it was coincidence, I would say, because I grew up in a country that was at war. So it was a reality in my life uh, as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult. So I was pretty curious to take up an elective that was offered in law school for the first time in, in the Faculty of Law in University of Colombo. Under the, under the title of International Humanitarian Law. So I was curious to know, is there really a law that governs war? Because all I see is horrendous consequences all around me. So I did study the subject that way. And then I got, that's how I first got introduced to the ICRC about the existence of this very unique organization. So I went to the United States to do my graduate studies and I came back. And I was very lucky because the post of legal advice in the ICRC Colombo had opened up. And I have, of course, I applied. <laughs> and then uh, I was very lucky, I guess, got selected. Lo and behold, that's, that was my entry into the ICRC. And then it also happened that Sri Lanka was one of the top 10 operations of the ICRC at the time. And that's not necessarily a compliment. That means that things are going pretty wrong in the country in, from the perspective of, of an armed conflict. So the ICRC was very heavily involved in, in humanitarian operations. And I also had the chance to volunteer to a medical evacuation. And I, I, I really saw, I believe, is what is the heart of the ICRC's mandate as, as a neutral intermediary. So that got me enticed into being an operational legal advisor for the ICRC, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on in, the, in this episode. Then I jumped at the opportunity when the ICRC offered me to, to be an operational legal advisor, starting with Afghanistan. And then I went on to be an operational legal coordinator for ICRC in Iraq and Syria and so on. So briefly, that's my journey with the ICRC. And here I am in, in Washington, D.C. 
That's incredible. Uh, you mentioned briefly the heart of what the ICRC does. Can you explain a little bit more about the role and mission of the ICRC? Sure, sure. So the ICRC has its mandate in the Geneva Conventions, as you all know, in the Geneva Conventions, the additional protocols, and also the statutes of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. Um, so that is to say that we have an international mandate conferred by states on the ICRC to do something very unique. That is to be an independent and neutral organization that ensures protection and assistance to of victims and to victims um, of armed conflict and, and other situations of violence. That essentially, and we can talk a little bit about the neutral independent role later on, but that basically means that the ICRC works with parties to armed conflict to ensure that they comply with international humanitarian law obligations, to make sure that those who are protected, those who have protected status in armed conflict are in fact protected. Those who need access to basic services in fact have those uh, that kind of access. And also that parties to armed conflict fight war according to the rules of rules of war in the choice of means and methods of warfare and, and in the way they carry out their hostilities and detention operations and then so on. And another way to look at the ICRC's role, Emily, is to think about what is commonly referred to as the, the guardian of IHL, ICRC being the guardian of IHL. And that is not only to ensure that states and parties to armed conflict faithfully apply IHL in times of armed conflict, but also to play a clarification and development role in relation to the law. So the ICRC takes upon itself the responsibility as cast upon by, as conferred by states on it to make sure that the law is developed and interpreted in, in line with the spirit of the law, balancing humanity versus military necessity, uh, remaining faithful to the law so that states and other non-state actors um, apply the law in, in, uh, in times of armed conflict in the way that they are obliged to. So that's, that's the threefold role of the ICRC, I would say, protection, assistance, and um, sort of developing and clarifying the role, um, uh, clarifying the law in a preventive sense. So on that more granular level of the law and your role as a legal advisor, in practical terms, Lakmini, what does that mean? What I'm hearing is a little bit of legal development in terms of ensuring things are codified and therefore enforced. But are you also dealing with, say, investigations of actors that aren't in compliance? Um, who, you know, who is your client? Do you represent any of the parties that, that you're speaking to? Just to give an idea of just what attorneys for the ICRC do on a daily basis. That's an important question, Emily, because I think it's in, uh, this, the reason I say impo it's important is because whether you're a legal advisor in the ICRC or whether you're an engineer working on water and sanitation issues or um, medical specialist, um, we all treat the, uh, as our customers the beneficiaries of our humanitarian services. So they are, in fact, our, we treat them as our boss because mm -hmm. that's our ultimate, um, that's where our accountability is too. So when you ask me who are my clients, I can, of course, I think that's our primary client to whom we have to remain uh, accountable. But then depending on what type of a legal advisor you are in the ICRC, your audience changes. 
So I think we can categorize the legal advisors of the ICRC broadly into three categories. Uh, for the ease of understanding, I would say they could be um, one category would be thematic legal advisors, mainly based in our headquarters in Geneva and um, and to a certain extent in, in in our office in New York, for example, who are delving deep into thematic issues and sort of interpreting the law, developing the law, um, and working with states bilaterally or in multilateral forums to, to work with the, the clarification and development of the law, um, be it in treaty, in drafting treaties uh, or you know, agreements uh, and, and so on and so forth. And then, uh, and in and uh, being active in in multilateral forums like the United Nations, um, and then more connected to the field, I would say, are two categories of legal advisors: one who work on the um, national implementation of the law, meaning working with states to make sure that they have the tools and the systems in place to apply the law when it it's time to apply the law. Um, like have the national law in place, make sure that um, militaries are trained, academy, academy, academia are providing um, educational um, you know, opportunities for people to learn, students to learn about the law and so on and so forth. So there, there's that category of lawyers. And then you have lawyers, legal advisors such as myself, who are, uh, the, I would say, the equivalent of NSL practitioners. We are called operational legal advisors. We accompany a delegation in in uh, in not in every delegation, but in certain delegations where there are active hostilities going on, or where there are uh, operations into which that state is military operations into which that state is party to, where we advise the ICRC and through the ICRC the the client the the states or the non-state actors to apply the law to real life situations. So it's operational examples or uh, case studies to which, uh, and real life ones to which we provide advice. So I would say those are the three categories of legal advisors that you find in the ICRC through whom we reach out to states and the, the three branches of states, non-state actors, academia, uh, militaries, and so on and so forth. And along the lines of being an operational attorney, what would you say currently are the biggest legal challenges that you and your department are seeing and facing from an operational standpoint in today's ongoing conflicts? Thanks, Emily. I, I'll answer that question more from the perspective of the ICRC's legal division, broadly speaking, and not just the Washington office as such, because it also, of course, it applies to us, but it's also bigger than us. So I will refer, of course, to the Ukraine context because it's it's front and center of mind um, for for most of us, um, you know, in the ICRC, in the militaries and states, and so on. But I think it's important to also, as the ICRC, our mandate, our commitment is to all populations and militaries affected and involved in armed conflict around the globe. So in that sense, one of the challenges that we see, or one of the key issues that we see is connected to the higher number of non-international um, um, uh, non armed conflicts that we see in the world today, the proliferation of non-state armed groups and their roles uh, in these non-international uh, uh, non armed conflicts and um, our ability to work with these actors to apply international humanitarian law faithfully. So I think 
And to that, I would also add the role of private military uh, security companies who also play an, you know, um, very significant role in, in these type of armed conflicts. So just to also put that in perspective and to say the ICRC doesn't take its eyes off the ball from a global perspective and therefore the, the proliferation of non-state armed groups and the higher number of non non-international armed conflicts in the world is, is also one important issue that the ICRC pays attention to. But and maybe also bringing it down to uh, the Ukraine context, I think the Ukraine context has highlighted an issue which actually Lieutenant Colonel Dan Maurer also referred to in an earlier NSL podcast, um, which is the, the fact that civilians are increasingly becoming active contributors to and participants to hostilities. And we as the ICRC, our attention here is uh, precisely to the issue whether does this now cross the threshold of DPHing? You know, are they now DPHing, uh, directly participating in hostilities? I'm sorry. Um, and as a consequence, are they now losing their protection as uh, protected entities in times of armed conflict?